We're looking at the mystery of the gospel and the situation that was there in the first century where God, after separating, purposefully separating Jew and Gentile for 2,000 years, now brings them together to completely different cultures, different ways of thinking, different foibles, and so forth, and, and brings them together and says, you need to be one body in Christ. So we're working our way through this and seeing uh, what principles there are there that can teach us about being a united household today. And so I think this is a vitally important topic. In fact, much of the New Testament deals with this. You think of the, the letters of Paul, for instance, in which he's dealing with, on the one hand, the Judaizers, and on the other hand, things like uh, paganism, or should you eat uh, meats offered to idols, that sort of thing. And this is something that comes all the way through the New Testament. Uh, Jesus dealt with it, of course, when he was talking to the scribes and the Pharisees and how their religion had developed into that very uh, legalistic way of looking at things. And all of these forces came clashing together in the first century. So what we uh, finished with last week was looking at the Apostle Paul himself and how he ran into these sort of issues, especially we looked at uh, the time when he came to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 21. He's been in the Gentile world. He's been preaching the gospel, the, the, the mystery of the gospel, that these Gentiles are, are fellow heirs with the Jews that God is not going to make any distinction anymore between Jew and Gentile. They are both equal in the sight of God. And when Paul comes to Jerusalem, he finds that the Jews are concerned about what he's been teaching. And they think he's been teaching that you should not keep the law of Moses. You should not keep the feasts, which is something that Paul didn't actually teach. He did teach, of course, you can look at Romans and Galatians and so forth. He did teach that the, the law cannot save, that we can only be saved in the Lord Jesus Christ by the grace of God. But he never said, don't do the feast. It's wrong to, to, to keep the feast, for instance, or it's wrong to keep the Sabbath. And to, to illustrate this, in Acts chapter 21, verse 26, we see that uh, he was asked by the elders in Jerusalem to perform a vow with some other Jews who had uh, probably the Nazarite vow, and Paul went along with it. And, and when you've read uh, chapters like, or books like Galatians and Hebrews, you scratch your head and think, well, why did Paul do this? And again, the point here, brothers and sisters, is that Paul never taught that it's wrong to do the various rituals of the law. What was wrong was thinking that those things saved you. So we can apply that to today, that there are various things that different ecclesias do, which uh, we might not agree with, or we might not think is important to do. And yet we are not at liberty to say to those ecclesias, you shouldn't be doing this because you're not going to be saved by whatever it might be. And uh, this week, we're going to carry on with this theme, and I want us to have a look at the balance. And uh, I think it was Jim who brought this up last week, that there are certain things, and we encounter this in the first century, that we should make a stand about. 
Now, now, Paul didn't make a stand about keeping this vow. He said, fine, fair enough. To the Jews, I am a Jew. To those under the law, I am under the law, that I might win some to Christ. He wrote about that to the Corinthians. But there was a line that should not be crossed. And that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to have a look at the difference between those things which are matters of conscience. And, and for many Jewish Christians in the first century, there were certain things, and also for Gentile Christians, there were certain things that they just couldn't let go of. It was, it was too big a step for them to let go. And, and they felt the need still to keep the Sabbath, go to Jerusalem for the feasts, perform vows and so forth. And, and the Apostle Paul, according to what he lived out in Acts 21, was, was perfectly happy with that. Go ahead. Can just remember, you're not going to be saved by doing those things. Now, the line is crossed, and we're going to look at this word dogma, not particularly the English word, but there's a, there's a Greek word dogma, which crops up in the New Testament. And, and Paul, especially in his letters, uses this word a couple of times for those instances where we take things too far in our demands on fellow believers. And we can cause great problems if we make our demands too, too much. If we um, put our own conscience upon others and demand that they follow our same conscience on matters which ultimately do not matter. So that's what we're going to be talking about. And uh, first of all, we want to go back to this idea of matters of conscience. And a really, really good chapter for dealing with this is Romans chapter 14. Now, I've got all the verses on the screen, but I recommend you open it, your Bibles up at Romans 14 so you can see the whole context. And this is the chapter in which the Apostle Paul is dealing with those who are strong in the faith, as he calls them, and those who are weak in the faith. The, the strong in the faith are those people who realize that things like circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing at all. It doesn't matter if you're circumcised or uncircumcised. It doesn't matter if you keep the Sabbath or don't keep the Sabbath. It doesn't matter if you perform a, a Nazarite vow or don't perform it. Those things are of no consequence as far as salvation in Christ. So those are, those are the strong brethren. The, the weak ones are those who, because of their nagging conscience about these things, regard the Sabbath still as some importance and, and want to keep the Sabbath. And uh, unclean foods, they have difficulty with eating pork, and they want to still avoid eating pork. And, and Paul describes those people in Romans 14 as weak brethren, uh, weak in faith. Not, not weak in having faith in God, but it's just a, a term that Paul uses for those people who... Um, need um, some holding up in their faith because of their conscience. So let's, let's work through this. Now, Romans 14 is significant because we looked at this verse last week. Right at the end of Romans, in chapter 16, Paul says that what he's been doing in Romans is teaching the mystery of the gospel. He's been teaching them about 
how to how Jew and Gentile come together in Christ. That's how he opens up the whole epistle in the first place. In the first few chapters, he talks about the, the, the sin of the Gentile world. Then he talks about the sin of the Jewish world. And he says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, we're on a level playing field as far as salvation is concerned. And then he develops these themes as he goes through. And now in chapter 14, he's dealing with these practical matters that come out of the mystery of the gospel. How there was this clash in Rome and in every other ecclesia, probably had similar uh, difficulties, where people had different levels of conscience regarding certain things. So, in the first couple of verses of Romans 14, Paul asks the question, should we quarrel about things which are matters of opinion? So the first couple of verses says, as for the one who is weak in faith, Paul says, welcome him. And, and straight off the bat, that's, that's what Paul tells us that we should do. And when we look at somebody who we think is maybe we, we, we tend to label people. We talked about this last week, the danger of labeling people. We talk about people who are, are pharisaical or, or strict or, or too rigid in their faith because they, you know, have very strict dress codes or whatever it might be. What we're to do is to welcome those people and not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes you may eat anything while a weak person eats only vegetables. So that's a, a really good example of where people can start quarreling. And even in the secular world, people quarrel about uh, the value of vegetarianism against eating meat. And you shouldn't eat meat because those poor animals and so forth. And uh, in, in the first century, it wasn't that so much, but it was about whether certain foods were kosher. And I think that's what Paul is talking about here. He's talking here to Jews who struggled to let go of things like dietary requirements under the law. While other Christians, the Gentile community, and probably some of the Jews, realized that whether you eat meat, vegetables, pork, lamb, whatever it is, doesn't matter one iota. doesn't make a difference. But it does make a difference to those who think it makes a difference. And so we need to have respect for that. Now, this uh, little phrase here about quarreling over opinions, I think the New English Bible, which is normally a translation I don't like at all, but I, in this case, I think it really brings out the meaning of that. The New English Bible says, without attempting to settle doubtful points. And I really think that's captured the spirit of what Paul is talking about here. There are, there are a lot of doubtful points that we have as Christadelphians. Um, when exactly will Christ return? Where will the judgment seat be? Will it be in Sinai? Will it be somewhere else? Um, should sisters wear head coverings just at the memorial service or at all times? What about when you're doing the readings at home? Um, all sorts of things that we, we tend to, as Christadelphians, when we get into discussions, we tend to quarrel about them. What Paul says is we shouldn't really be attempting to settle these doubtful points. 
These are things that Christadelphians have argued about for 150 years, and we're going to keep arguing about them until the kingdom comes. And when the judgment comes, and Paul is going to talk about the judgment in this chapter, we're going to ask ourselves the question, why did we waste so much time arguing about these things that ultimately don't matter? So we're not going to settle these doubtful points. So don't let these things divide you. And, and sadly, some, some of these things have divided ecclesias in the past. Even such things as whether you should wear a, 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 a dress, um, what you might call it, a jacket on the platform or not. And ecclesias are split over, over things like that. And Paul is at pains to say that, no, you've, you've got to uh, be united in Christ and not argue about these things. So that's one example in verse 2 about uh, meat and vegetables. In verse 5, he talks about holy days. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. See where, what Paul says there? Be convinced in your own mind. This is a matter of conscience. It's not something which should define your religion and your fellowship with your brothers and sisters. If you think it's important to rest on Saturday, go ahead, rest on Saturday. If that is something you need for you to, to be like a, an undergirding of your faith, go for it. But realize that some people don't need that because we're not saved by keeping the Sabbath. Look at the Lord Jesus Christ and how he explained through his, uh, his teaching and his miracles that these, are the, these things don't save you. But respect that some people have difficulty letting those things go. So um, what we have then in the first century coming back to this whole theme of the mystery of the gospel, coming together of Jew and Gentile, is this, this pull of what I call, and I think it is, superstition. And that's really what it is. These, these weak brethren in Rome were really superstitious. And uh, they were tied to the ritualism of the temple. And it's very, very hard to let go of superstition. And, and for many brethren in the first century, they, they, it was just a bridge too far to let go of the, those things. But equally for the Gentiles, they had come out of a, a very superstitious religion. And for them, it was hard to disassociate certain things from paganism. So that's why in, in other uh, parts of the Bible in First Corinthians chapters eight and ten, for instance, Paul talks about meats offered to idols. The, the the Gentiles had a real tough time disassociating meat with idolatry, and he's not dealing with specifically here. He's more concerned with Jewish superstition in Romans fourteen. But the same sort of principles apply. Have respect for the conscience of those who have their individual foibles even if we think they're ridiculous or on the other side if we if we think that person isn't a true brother because he doesn't do it the same way that i do it 
And that's what Paul is, is going to get into. Uh, in verse 3, this sums up the attitude of mind between those who have these different opinions about certain things. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Now that's, a, that's something we should underline, isn't it? God has welcomed this person. God has called this person to his family. And if God has welcomed him, who are we not to welcome him? Even though we disagree over these, these different matters. So we can have these, these different attitudes. So the strong brother, the one who realizes eating or not eating meat is neither here or there, tends to despise the one who abstains. And they might uh, look down on that other person and think they're pharisaical and strict for the sake of being strict. And they're picky and, and bigoted and narrow-minded and they don't have a, a real strong faith in, in Christ because they're, they're just all ritualistic. So that's what's one attitude we can have, and that's wrong. The other attitude is to pass judgment on the one who eats. So this is the Jewish brother, what Paul calls the weak brother, looking at this Gentile who's tucking into this pork, and he judges that brother as inferior, as not... Um, taking the truth seriously. How dare he do something like that? It's the sort of feeling you might get if, if you're used to dressing up on a Sunday morning where a brother comes in and he's not wearing a tie and you judge that brother in your heart and think, well, he's not really committed to the truth. No, that is wrong. God has welcomed both of these uh, people. So we ought to welcome them too. And I really like this quote that I've got here, this is obviously not from the, the Bible, this is Charles Dickens, but I think it, it's true what he says here. Most men unconsciously judge the world from themselves, and it will be very generally found that those who sneer habitually at human nature and affect to despise it are among its worst and least pleasant samples. So most men unconsciously judge the world from themselves, from their point of view from their particular way of thinking and, and we tend to think that our way of thinking our approach to issues our stance on problems is right otherwise we wouldn't have those opinions but what we're doing when we when we think we're right about something and we look at somebody who doesn't do it the same way that we do we very easily judge that then they are unrighteous. It's, it's a natural thing. And Paul in Romans says, no, that is wrong. We shouldn't be like that. So we have this tendency then to um, become extreme in our viewpoints. So those of us who are more liberal, when we look at somebody who is more right-wing, we naturally despise them, we say they're pharisaical, and we distance ourselves from them. Likewise, those who are more conservative, those who are more traditional, those who are more right-wing, they tend to judge those who are liberal, and they tend to 
move apart from each other. This is what Paul is at pains for us to avoid. Because ultimately, this is what he says in verse 10. Um, who are you, or verse 4, sorry, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So, similar thing to what he said before, how God has welcomed this person. His Lord is able to make him stand. His Lord is on his side. So, who are we to pass judgment on other people when uh, God and Christ are working with that person? And maybe it is that they don't have a mature faith. Maybe they are this little sapling down here. Or maybe you're up here and you're more mature in your faith. But understand that God has welcomed that person and is working in their life and causing them to grow. And maybe at some point they will be as righteous as you are. But for right now, don't judge that person. Christ is working in their lives. And uh, we need to understand we're all going through this, this growth process. And I, I think we understand this conceptually, but getting it into our minds so that it affects our, our real world interactions is, is more difficult. Because when push comes to shove, human nature does tend to take over, and we do tend to view others who are different as inferior in some way. Uh, so he has, says, have respect for one another. Verse 6, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. So we need to realize that most people who do something that we might regard as overly strict are not doing it to be overly strict. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt that they're doing it in honor of God. That somebody who dresses up in a suit and tie on a Sunday morning does it in honor of God. Now, they might have ulterior motives. They might be putting on an outward show, but it's not ours to judge. We need to assume that our brethren are acting in a, an honorable manner, that they're doing it out of respect. And, and likewise, somebody who doesn't put a suit and tie on on a Sunday morning, don't assume that they're doing it for any nefarious purposes, that they're trying to make a point or uh, whatever it might be realize that that person is trying to honor God, even if they don't do it the same, you, same way as you do. So what can happen then is, um, and this is kind of like a, like my pendulum, Andrew complained about my pendulum um, analogy. And I, I, I agree with him, it's not quite right. But what I think does happen, brothers and sisters, is we, if we don't learn this lesson, we do tend to polarize, and we're both wrong. We're both going to fall off the edge if we don't attempt to uh, learn the lesson of the mystery of the gospel and come together. And this is the bottom line. Who are we to judge? Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. Notice it doesn't say every knee shall bow 
to my particular way of doing things. No, every knee shall bow to God. And then we'll give an account of ourselves to God. And if our account is, well, I dressed up for meeting, or I wasn't pharisaical, or whatever it might be, our Lord is going to look at us and say, you just didn't understand. It's not about these things. Look what he says in verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So what Paul really, I think, is asking us to do here is to change our perspective. Our aim in, in, in situations of, of conflict like this is not to try to force through our righteous opinion. Rather, our concern needs to be for our brother. So don't put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. So, so Paul classifies himself as one of these strong brethren. Nothing is unclean in itself. But, he says, it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. And that's what we got to remember, brothers and sisters. Even though we realize in our minds in our conscience that there's nothing wrong with something for those who think it is unclean it is unclean for if your brother is grieved by what you eat you know i'm no longer walking in love by what you eat do not destroy the one for whom christ died now the rest of the chapter it's interesting what paul does is he tells the strong brethren that they ought to submit to the weak brethren and this is the rule of thumb that, that Paul brings out. It's very unlikely, you see, for a weak brother to concede to the strong brother. It doesn't really work like that. And so Paul goes to the strong brethren and says, what you need to do is to concede to their conscience. So if they think that dressing up for Bible class is important dress up for bible class don't make an issue of it don't make that brother as you turn up to bible class don't make that brother concentrate on things other than the word of god because he's focused on the fact that you've turned up scruffy so the so that that's the rule of thumb the strong ought to concede to the weak and that's what paul did in acts chapter 21 uh, he could have said to the Jews, don't be so stupid. We're not saved by keeping a Nazarite vow. This is ridiculous. And he could have got into a big argument with them. But he didn't. He conceded to them. Now, that is a general principle that Paul brings out. But as I said, a little bit later on, we're going to see the, the counterpoint to this. Because there are certain things in which we can go too far in our demands on others. So we'll come to that in a, a moment. And here's another uh, verse, which is the bottom line. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. And you can see the it, it's a hyperbole of Paul here. He's comparing something absolutely massive, the kingdom of God, 
with something, when you compare it with the kingdom of God, you realize is, is nothing what we eat or what we drink. So another way of saying this is that we have to realize what are the weightier matters of the law. What Jesus said to the Pharisees, what Micah said in Micah chapter 6. You know, it's not about bringing your offerings. It's not about your ritualistic religion. It's about uh, the more important things of um, loving your brother, of walking humbly, of doing justice and mercy and so forth. So we need to get our priorities right. If, if we um, cause division by these issues, then we don't understand what the truth is all about. All right, so that's Romans chapter 14. Any uh, thoughts on that? I went through that rather quickly. Hopefully that made sense. One of the, uh, one of the problems is that some of these things on a Sunday morning have the effect of uh, virtually destroying the service for some people. Right, and that's where you've got to know your brother. So if you, for instance, if you, uh, you mean, for instance, you, because you're distracting, is that what you mean, Ken? Yes, uh, I, I'm thinking of the clothing matter. Right. And I, I think that's where, if you belong to an ecclesia, and Esther and I have belonged to ecclesias, which are, you know, very um, formal in the dress code. And I personally don't like putting on a suit and tie. So what was I to do in that case? And I, and I, I don't think wearing a suit and tie on a Sunday morning is a matter of salvation. But in these ecclesias, I concede to the, the way of doing things. Even though I don't think this is what salvation is all about, what the kingdom of God is all about, I put a suit and tie on because, I, as you said, Ken, I don't want to distract my brothers and sisters from um, the breaking of bread. There's something more important than me demanding my right not to have to wear a suit and tie or for a sister demanding her right not to have to wear a skirt or whatever, you know, whatever it might be where we, we think, oh, this is so pharisaical. No, Paul says in Romans 14, it's not worth creating a big fuss over something you already realize doesn't matter. And instead to, to, to concede to the way of doing things and, uh, that, as, as Ken said, that means that people aren't distracted and they can get on with um, more important things. Now, having said that, here's the other side. Sorry, this is Erin. Oh, Aaron. sure. Yeah, Erin, go um, ahead. To play devil's advocate, how, I mean, if you were to say, be adamant in your feelings that wearing a tie and jacket was wrong, mm-hmm. In, in that ecclesia that dressed formally, I, not not necessarily well, not necessarily wrong, but you felt strongly that it 
you didn't need to or have to. I always felt this is such a difficult situation or difficult matter. I always feel like one's playing emotional blackmail against the other. Well, that's why that's why we're spending five classes on this, Eric. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and this is why uh, this is why half the New Testament deals with the, the clash of cultures, because it's not an easy thing. And uh, I, this is why we need to go through uh, things like this to to learn these principles, because we're not I'm not going to come up with you must do this in this situation. You must not do that and come up with a, you know, a handout that summarizes all the things we ought to do. No, what we, what we need to do in educating one another is to get closer and closer to Christ. And uh, that's what Paul does in his in his letters. That's why he, he spends so much time and he's always leading us to Christ. And um, and that leads into. Hey, Rich, can, can I ask you one other thing related to errands? So suppose one of those people came from ecclesias that you belong to in the past that were real big on formal stuff or. Maybe they only want to use the green hymn book. They don't want to use any praise the Lord books. And mm -hmm. they have all these lists of things that they've had. And they come to Simi Hills now. And now they make demands of all of us that we have to concede to them. Right. So that's, that's, that's what yeah. I would like you to answer in relation to Romans 14. All right. <laughs> well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer that. I'm not going to answer that. I'm going to let the Apostle Paul answer it. So that's, that's the second half. And I know this time is going on, so I'm going to move on to it. So this is the, this is the second half. This is the other side of the coin. And uh, this is where we can, as Jim suggested, we can cross the line and go too far on our uh, demands on fellow believers. And uh, I think Paul covers this sort of thing in his main epistles, where he talks about the mystery of the gospel which as we've seen in our first two weeks are the epistles to the Ephesians and Colossians. And we were halfway through that section in Ephesians last week. Remember we talked about uh, how it's the blood of Christ who brings Jew and Gentile together. So this is Ephesians chapter two. What brings us together is the blood of Christ. It's a serious thing that, that brings us together. I mean, the blood of Christ is no small thing. This cost the, the death of the Son of God to make Jew and Gentile one in Christ. And that's what Paul is at pains for us to understand in Ephesians. This, this is a huge, huge issue to, to bring about this, this unity of mind. So let's go back to Ephesians chapter 2. And uh, this is the, the key verse I want to have a look at. In Ephesians 2... He says that he, Jesus, is our peace. So that is the means to our unity. Our unity does not come about through anything ultimately other than being in Christ, in, in everything that that means, understanding who Christ is, learning from his example, being baptized into him, uh, living the life of Christ. That is ultimately what brings peace. It is Christ that, that centers us and draws us away from polarizing and extremism. So Paul says, Christ has made us, Jew and Gentile, both one. And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. We had a look at that last week, how there actually was a dividing wall in the temple. 
that separated the Jews from the Gentiles. And that's been completely broken down in Christ. There now is not meant to be any separation between Jew and Gentile. So that's what we finished last week. And then in the next verse, this is the verse I want to concentrate on. He did this by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that through the process of doing that, he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So you can see he's saying uh, pretty much the same thing in verses 14 and 15, but he's, he's stressing the point by using now a different analogy. <clears throat> First of all, he used the dividing wall. Now he talks about abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now we know that in Christ, the law of Moses has been done away with. We are not saved by law. We're saved by the grace of God. Paul covers this earlier on in Ephesians 2. However, Paul's emphasis here in verse 15 is not so much on the law itself, but what I've highlighted here, the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. And I think that's the key to understanding what, what Paul is saying here. What, what this uh, idea behind uh, expressed in ordinances is the, the sort of thing that the Jews turned the law of Moses into. So they produce things like the, ba the Babylonian Talmud, which is a list of uh, rules and extra principles that they added to the law. Uh, the, the, what they thought should be the outworking of the law of Moses. And in, in the first century, this had become their religion. When Jesus talked to the scribes and Pharisees, most of the debates he had with them was not so much over the law itself, but how they expressed that law in ordinances. Now, what is this word ordinances? Well, it happens to be the Greek word, here it is, dogma very similar in its meaning in in some ways to our english word dogma but what it basically means and this is from a uh, lexicon here this word dogma simply means what seems to be right or an opinion and that is is what paul has reduced the Judaistic religion to. And, and this was, of course, a big problem in the first century. On the one hand, you had Jews who had difficulty letting go of the law. And that's what we've discussed in Romans 14. But on the other hand, you had the Judaizers who insisted on certain things under the law and insisted on keeping their traditions. Like illustrated in this in this picture, here is one of Jesus' disciples uh, eating meat or eating eating food, and he hasn't gone through the ritual of washing beforehand. Now, this is not a hygiene thing. This was a whole ritualistic process where uh, the Jews had to go through this before eating, and it was part of their tradition. This is the, the washings that's talked about uh, a few times in the New Testament. But what Paul says 
is that what this Pharisee was doing was simply what seems to him to be right. It was just his opinion. That's all it was. This is, this is not something which should define your religion. This should be reduced to simply, well, the Pharisees have the opinion that you should wash or you should keep the Sabbath in this way. Don't let that become your religion. Now, in Colossians, he says the same thing. So this is the parallel to Ephesians. He says, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. That's the same word dogma. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And that's the key again. This cost the life of the son of god to, to get the point across that these legal demands that the jews had was jewish dogma jewish opinion which should just be cast aside as just that as just um opinion and something that might seem to be right but isn't it's done away with in christ so this is, this is really the, the, the answer to that brother who turns up at your ecclesia and demands that we need to use the green hymn book, demands that we need to wear a suit and tie on a Sunday morning or whatever it might be. That is the same spirit as what Paul is talking about here. He talks about it a little bit later on, too, in Colossians chapter 2. This is a famous little passage. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? It's interesting. This elemental spirits of the world, these are the, the various aspects of the Jewish religion that he's talking about. And he calls it the world. He says, this is worldly. And he says, why do you submit to regulations? That's the plural of the word dogma in uh, Greek. And he quotes those who are insisting on certain things. Do not handle, do not touch, taste, do not touch. You must use the King James Version. You must wear a tie. Sisters must wear a skirt. Um, you must use these and vows in your prayers. You know, whatever it might be, Paul says these are examples of dogma. Referring to things that perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. You see how he's reducing these things to things that we, you know, when we talk about human precepts and teachings, normally we think about, you know, humanism and so forth. Well, that is a human precept and teaching. But the other side of the coin is that these uh, dogmatic or, or uh, legal demands, they are human precepts and teachings. They have nothing to do with salvation in Christ. They might have an appearance of wisdom. They seem to be right, which is the meaning of dogma, in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body. But look at what Paul says. See how emphatic he is. He says they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So this is the answer. This is, this is much um, 
sterner, if you like, of Paul than what he wrote to the Romans. He's dealing with a different matter here. He's dealing with what Jim was talking about, where people make demands of us, thinking that, you know, you're not really a proper Christadelphian unless you do it this certain traditional way. Well, doing that certain traditional way, Paul says, has no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It's absolutely inconsequential. And uh, he's at pains to get this across. Now, the seriousness of this comes out um, a little earlier in Colossians. Oh, before we get there, just to summarize. So this word dogma, it's only used uh, six times in the New Testament. So we've seen the one in Ephesians, the couple in Colossians. It's also the word used for Roman decrees, interestingly. Uh, and it's used one other time, certain decisions that have been reached in Acts chapter 16. We're going to look at that in a moment. So this is where dogma can lead. Back in Colossians chapter 2, look what the Apostle Paul says about these legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And look what it says in verse 15. Paul then goes to talk about Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross. It says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, I thought that it was Jesus who was put to shame on the cross. He was one nailed to the cross like a common criminal. But Paul turns it upside down and says, no, the ones who were put to shame at the crucifixion were the rulers and the authorities. People like this fellow here who put Jesus on the cross because why? ultimately because Jesus disagreed with his dogma. Now, now just think about the seriousness of this, brothers and sisters. The dogma of the Jews and the dogma of the Romans, like the decrees of, of the, the Romans, that dogmatic stance, which is just someone's opinion, caused the death of the Son of God. You, you can trace directly from the crucifixion to the fact that Jesus told these Jews they were wrong about their dogma. And that's where dogma can lead. So this is, this is super important to, for us to understand. In, in, in sometimes in the demands that we can make on our fellow believers, it can be like nailing a, a nail into the cross of one of Christ's brethren, the same spirit that brought about the murder of the Son of God. This is, I can't stress enough how serious this is. And I've, I've seen it in uh, my own life in the truth, where there has been a demand on young people which goes above and beyond what the scriptures say. And those young people have left the truth because of it. They've lost their faith. They said, I want nothing to do with Christadelphians. We might as well have just driven a nail into them and, and put them up on a cross. So that, that, that I, I hope we realize is how serious this uh, situation is. So we've got a, a few minutes left.
and how to and this is this is the task for all of us how do we differentiate between what are simple matters of conscience and when somebody goes too far in their demands on a fellow believer how do we determine that well that's for all of us to to figure out and to to try to learn the lessons from what paul says and to uh deal with these things as they come up in our ecclesias so i mentioned back here this word dogma which i presented as a very negative word but in fact it's used in one place in acts chapter 16 in a positive context and i want to have a look at that because we need it to be a little bit balanced in uh, the way we look at all of these things so for our last few minutes i want us to look at what happens in the context of acts chapter 16. So this is talking about the apostles following the Jerusalem conference, which is what chapter 15 is all about. It says that as the apostles went on their way through the cities, they delivered to the Gentiles. He's talking about the Gentile ministry of Paul. They delivered to them for observance, the decisions, and that's the word dogma, that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So here's actually an example and this is goes to the other side of the coin an example of where gentiles are being asked to observe certain dogma so it's not that decisions that we make as ecclesias are always wrong because it's just our opinion and we're going to you know offend somebody by doing it no there are certain circumstances where we do need to make decisions for others to observe. And uh, the Jerusalem conference is an example of this. But the key to this, excuse me, the key to this is that the underlining principle of these decisions was directed towards trying to bring about the unity of jew and gentile and to solve the problem of this clash of cultures whereas the dogma of the jews who put jesus on the cross was the opposite their dogma was about reinforcing the division between what it meant to be a righteous jew and anybody else so it's a completely different way of looking at decisions. So the decisions we should be making, brothers and sisters, if they're not directed towards the unity of the body, and instead they're emphasizing um, our dogmatic stance that we might differentiate ourselves from inferior Christadelphians, then obviously we're wrong. So what was the controversy in the, uh, the time of the Jerusalem Conference? It comes back to what we looked at in our first couple of classes, this idea of circumcision. So Paul deals with this in Ephesians. The Jews used this label for the uh, Gentiles. They said, you are the uncircumcision. And this wasn't solved completely by the death of Christ. There were brethren in the ecclesia who still thought you should be circumcised. 
So some men came down from Judea who were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. The line has been crossed. Unless you use the King James, you cannot be saved. Um, I heard many years ago that some young people in a youth weekend were told by a brother, you won't be in the kingdom unless you read Elpis Israel. It's one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard in my life. I mean, Elpis Israel is a wonderful work by uh, a wonderful Bible student. But whether you read Elpis Israel or not isn't going to determine your salvation. And, and that should be obvious to us. But sometimes these things aren't obvious. And sometimes we can cross the line by making these demands. And that's exactly what uh, happened here. You can't be saved unless you are circumcised. Uh, they were the party of the Pharisees. They, they struggled to let go of this. It is necessary to circumcise them, to order them, to keep the law of Moses. So this is exactly the sort of thing that Jim was talking about earlier. So how do they deal with it? Well, this is, the Acts 15 is all about the mystery of the gospel. The emphasis in this was on the doctrine of grace. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. That's the kernel of the mystery of the gospel. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? I mean, this is the ridiculous thing about it. We, we can't be saved by keeping law. Why are we putting these demands on the Gentiles? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus, just as they will. We are on the same level playing field. And then James gets up and he shows that he understands the mystery of the gospel. God visited the Gentiles to take up people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. See what James is doing here? He's saying this was hidden away in the Old Testament. This is the mystery in plain sight in the Old Testament that has now been revealed by the mouth of the apostles. And this is the, the thing that uh, Jason is talking about in Sunday school. The, um, the passage from Amos about the tabernacle of David and how that speaks about the call of the Gentiles. So there, the whole answer to this problem was the, the revelation of the mystery. Therefore, they gave their judgment. This is dogma. My judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. So I think that's the, the last slide. So we know this very well, that uh, Paul and the other apostles to the Gentiles took this, this document with them to the Gentile ecclesias and said, We'd like you to observe these things. Pollution from idols, sexual immorality, what has been strangled and from blood. 
But these observances that they asked, these were not things which were going to destroy their faith in Christ. These were not things which were too hard for them, too strict. If you analyze this, really what they're saying is, please make a double effort to disassociate yourself from the pagan world because your Jewish brethren are having a hard time handling it. So make sure you keep away from anything associated with paganism for the sake of your brethren. And again, that's the underlying uh, principle here. Are we making decisions, brothers and sisters, for the sake of our brethren? All right. Mm -hmm.